but I, I remember it impacting me watching kids one day, just one day in particular, running to the pool. And I thought, you know, every one of those kids has swum before. They've all been in the pool before, but they're so excited about it. And, um, and I remember just thinking about having a childlike faith and having that same excitement um, for the Lord like they had for the swimming pool and, and not becoming like the lifeguard. Oh, I've got to go save lives. Gotta go watch kids have fun in the pool. Because which one do you want to be before the Lord? I don't know. I want to be the kid wearing the goofy outfit, excited about what God's doing. I don't want to be the one that's like, yeah, I got to go make sure people get saved. (sighs) So anyway, if you came here today with the attitude of an old grumpy lifeguard, repent. All right. If you've got your Bible, assume the position. Let me see your swords. Uh, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates, separating soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the heart and are the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Um, All right, if you've got your Bible, open up to the book of Genesis, chapter fifteen. Genesis chapter fifteen. If the person next to you doesn't have one, just kind of tilt your Bible a little bit. So they can cheat more easily. Pretend they're that cute girl in science class in high school. <laughs> yeah. Sam's like, man, why am I a homeschooler? The only cute girl's my sister, and she's this big. It's true. <laughs> All right. Um, we are in Genesis chapter 15, chapter 15, and uh, we're kind of picking up in the middle here between a conversation that uh, Abram was having, Abram also known as Abraham, uh, God will change his name in just a little bit, um, but a conversation that Abram is having with God, and so God was speaking where we left off, and, uh, and he had promised uh, Abram that he would have a son from his own, his own body. Um, and that was kind of the, how the conversation began, where God said, I am your shield, I am your great reward. And Abram says, yeah, that's great, but um, what are you going to give me a son? That's great and all that you are my provider and you are my God, but you know, what about my, my son? Right now my only heir is uh, one of my servants. And so um, God tells him, you're going to have a son from your own flesh. And then, uh, then in verse 7, he picks up this and he says, Then he said to him, this is God speaking, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Uh, if you haven't been here, if you're not familiar with the story, God called Abram uh, quite a few years back. Uh, but prior to this, he calls him and he, out of the land that he lived. And he said, leave your land and your family and come to the land that I'm going to show you. In other words, he says, leave everything you know behind and go someplace. And I'm not telling you where you're going. Just go. And, uh, and Abram, it took him a little while to do it. And he didn't completely obey. He brought his nephew along. And that's caused him all kinds of problems so far. Uh, but he's getting it. And so at this point, God reminds him and says, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to, the, to give you the land to inherit it. And so God brought Abram out for a reason. And he tells him that. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out 
to give you this land. He says, this is why I brought you out. I brought you out of that land to give you this. I could give you a son back where you were. I could make you a great nation back where you were, but I brought you out of that land um, to give you this land. Now, previously, he just said, I'm going to bring you out of the land to a land I show you. And then he gets there and he goes, okay, this is the land. This is it. And so he's reminding him again um, that this is the land that I have shown you. Um, Abram had to leave Ur in order to receive what God had promised him. And so this got me thinking, what about us? Are we willing to go where God tells us to go in order to receive um, what God is has for us? And I think far too often what happens is we sit around waiting to receive before we leave. We sit around waiting to receive before we leave. We have some, maybe, we have, maybe the thing you need to leave is some issue in your life. Maybe God's telling you, you know what, you need to leave behind radio. You are obsessed with listening to the radio. Maybe you need to leave behind scrapbooking because you're obsessed with scrapbooking and it's all you think. You lay at night and all you think is layouts. Oh, if I just had those scissors with the design and the corner thing to make the... And maybe God say, you know what, go to bed thinking about me, not scrapbooking. You know, whatever, you know, and those things seem silly. Maybe, maybe what God's saying, leave behind, is maybe he's saying, you know, you need to leave behind pornography, or you need to leave behind uh, R-rated movies, or you le- need to leave behind um, Sports Center, um, Something that's of taking up your time and, and has become too important to you. Uh, maybe it's a sin, uh, you know, a sin issue in your life. Maybe it's anger, resentment, bitterness, and God's saying, you know, I want to bless you. I have so much more for you. I have this inheritance for you, but you've got to leave that stuff behind. You've got to leave it. Maybe God's just telling you, you know what? I want you to leave a physical location. I want you to go to this and do this. Maybe God's telling you, you know, you are in a place that you shouldn't be. Maybe it's a school place or maybe it's a job place. And he says, this is not where I want you to be. I want you to leave. And oftentimes, this is how it works. God leaves part of the equation out. And the reason he does that is because that part is his part. It's like divine algebra. One plus X equals three. And you go, well, what's X? Well, God fills in the X. God is the, God's the missing part of the equation. The problem is we want all the information. We want the whole thing. And so we, you know, we say, well, God, I, I don't want to leave until I have this next thing. I don't want to move on until I have uh, the next piece of the puzzle. And so sometimes we end up waiting for more information before we obey. Sometimes we wait for more money before we obey God. Sometimes we wait for everything to be perfect, and the problem is that that doesn't require faith. In other words, it doesn't require God to fulfill his word and his promise to us. It's trusting and relying on the assurance we gain from the information or the financial situation or whatever, rather than relying on God to fulfill what he has uh, promised to fulfill. Give you a little bonus for today. God's call upon your life doesn't have to make financial sense. So you're like, I don't know about that. Um, God's call upon your life does not make financial sense. Now, some of you have heard you've been um, you've been kind of brainwashed by this idea that you have to be a good steward of your money. Is there anything wrong with being a good steward of your money? Not at all. But people will say, oh, we're called to be good stewards. Well, actually, that phrase 
be a good steward is actually when the Bible's talking about the gospel. Be a good steward of the gospel you've been given, the message of Jesus Christ. The problem is far too many people use that as an excuse for not obeying God. God has called them to do something, and it doesn't make financial sense, or the pieces don't line up. They say, well, if I leave my, my job and my house here, how am I going to support my family? How am I going to do this? Well, that, if God doesn't tell you that part, well, don't worry about that part. Just do what God has told you to do. Do what God has told you to do. Sometimes we're waiting for that for the door to open. You know, all the pieces are. You know, we're we're waiting. We're just saying, you know, God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on you to show me when to go because I think I'm I'm ready. And and I don't know about you guys, but have you ever like been like when I was a kid, it was like going to the beach. Like your friend would call you up and say, Hey, you want to go to the beach? Yeah. Okay, we're leaving at 10. I'll come pick you up at your house. Okay. Well, I would have all my stuff ready to go at 9.50. I'd be ready. I'd be waiting by the door. And then 10 would come along, and my friend wouldn't come. I would start double-checking everything. I'd start checking my bag. Okay, I got sunscreen. And I'd start thinking, what else do I need to do before he gets here? What else? And then I'd start thinking, stuff. oh, yeah, I could bring this. And, you know, the later my friend was, the more stuff I had prepared. Oh, maybe I'll make a snack. Yeah, go do that. And the longer I waited, the more prepared I, I became. Um, and so as you're, as you're waiting on the Lord, because maybe it's one of those things where, where God has given you the first part and you're waiting for the rest, um, you're waiting for God's direction, um, keep getting ready. Maybe you have a calling upon your life to be a missionary, and you, you know that, but you don't, the, the door hasn't opened for you to go. You haven't had that opportunity um, to, to go and to do well in the meantime start getting ready if you are called to be a youth pastor and you're like but you know God hasn't shown me where to go to school well what do you do start studying now get ready now get those opportunities when I used to hire summer camp counselors one of the questions I used to ask them was uh there I you know I'd always ask them why do you want to work at camp and they'd always say stuff like well I just want to give back I'm like well I don't know what you got I don't know if I want you giving it to these kids. But I would always ask them, what are you doing with kids now? Because people say, oh, I just love kids. I just love them. Well, what are you doing with them now? Avoiding them. You love them. You know, some, and usually what people would say was, well, I, I babysit or, you know, not really anything. But when my cousins come over, we just have a blast. Well, that, that's what I always liked. I was like, okay, you've shown me that, that you like to do it. And so if you are called to do something, um, start getting ready. Start getting ready. Sometimes we get impatient with God, and God's saying, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you to, to prepare yourself. In my own life, I was praying one time, God, I want a wife, because I didn't have one. And other people did, and it looked like something that I wanted. So I was like, God, when am I going to get married? When am I going to get married? And God spoke to me in a really powerful and clear way, and, and what God said was, don't ask me when, ask me why not now. And I was like, oh, no. I don't want to ask why not now because I know I got issues. But when I, when I prayed, I said, okay, God, why not now? It was like these things. I was in debt. That's always a good thing. Hi. Come be my wife. And by the way, here's my debt. Help me pay it off. She's like, oh, thank you so much for that debt. So um, anyway, I had a bunch of things that I had to deal with uh, before, before I was ready. And uh, praise the Lord that God showed me those things. Anyway, let's, uh, let's move on. So God makes Abram a promise, and now I love Abram's response in verse 8. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. 
And he said, Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now, if there was ever a time in the history of the universe for somebody to say, because I said so, that was it. God says, I'm going to give you this land. Well, how do I know? Because I said so, and I'm God, you knucklehead. But God is much nicer than me, so he doesn't um, do such things. Instead, I love what God does. Verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram says, how do I know I'm going to inherit it? And God hands him a shopping list. I love that. Because this is what we do. We pray and we're like, dear Lord, what should I do? A, B, or C? We hand God a Scantron. Do you guys know what Scantrons are? Fill in the bubble with the number two pencil. Yeah. Lazy teachers in high school, we loved it because it was like Scantron. The way they graded a test, they stuck it on a machine. The machine went, there's the grade. They didn't have to read anything. They didn't. Scantron. We loved the Scantron teachers. Everything was multiple choice. Multiple choice was so easy because you'd be like, no, no, no. It's between these two. C, yes. But that's what we do. We're like, God, okay, God. I have the, what do you want me to do? A, blah, 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 blah. B, blah, 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 blah. C, blah, blah, blah. And God says, blue. That wasn't one of my three choices. But this is how God works so many times. We ask God, and we are expecting God to answer in one of these, these ways, and God does what he does to Abram. Abram says, how am I going to know? And God says, go get me a goat and a sheep and a heifer and a turtle dove and a pigeon. God gives him the grocery list. God, God doesn't always answer the way we desire or expect, but he does answer. And so he gives them a grocery list. Now, I've told you this many times, but when you read the Bible and you come across weird stuff, pay attention because it's there for a reason. And it's usually pointing you to Jesus. I should probably say always, but yeah, we'll say usually. Pointing you to Jesus and who he is. And so in the Old Testament especially, look for these things because they're important. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer. Why a heifer? Well, a heifer was a beast of burden. And Jesus came as our suffering servant in that, that picture of, of the, um, the ox, the, um, the one who pulled the plow that, that suffered for the benefit of others. Uh, the goat. Now, they had a, uh, a holiday in Israel called the Day of Atonement. And one of the things that happened on the Day of Atonement was they brought a, um, this goat to the high priest, and he would put his hand upon the goat's head, and it was symbolic of the sins of Israel being put upon that goat. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness, and he was called the scapegoat. And, uh, and so when we talk about the goat, um, it's the one who the sins of the nation were placed upon. 2 Corinthians 5.21, talking about Jesus, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the goat. The ram, the sheep, Jesus, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And then he's got the dove and the pigeon. Uh, There were different birds. They had some birds that were clean birds, some birds that were unclean birds. And these things are not actually even written yet in the Bible. They'll come later. Uh, We are given the Law of Moses. But we do see actually things that are referenced in the Law of Moses prior 
to the law, that God had these standards in place ahead of time. There were some birds they were allowed to eat and some they were not. And when you read about those birds uh, in particular, um, you, usually what you'll find is the clean birds represent spiritual things that are positive, spiritual beings, angels uh, and such, and that uh, the unclean birds, things like vultures and such, uh, are speaking in ravens, things that eat, uh, generally that eat meat, they're going to be the unclean birds, and they represent uh, demonic things and, and um negative spiritual things. So we're talking about the birds being those things that fly in the heavens, that idea of those things from the heavens. Uh, and so when we think of these two birds, Jesus, um, uh, the thing that kind of, I, th- I was thinking about this, like why two birds? You know, Jesus was the, the one from the heavens. Uh, but perhaps two birds because Jesus would come twice. Uh, the first time he comes as a suffering servant, and the second time he comes as a conquering king. And so we have two birds that are similar uh, the, the turtle dove and the pigeon are very similar, and yet um, they are different. Just as Jesus will come twice, um, the same guy, but coming uh, in, in two different ways. Verse 10. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Now when God gives Abram the shopping list, Abram knows what to do. Um, this was a cultural thing that, uh, that he would understand. And that is that uh, when you had two people entering into a covenant, a promise to one another, they would take animals and they would cut them in half and they would place the two halves on either side of a path and then the two of them hand in hand would walk down the middle and the idea is kind of a like a like when you get married and you say till death do us part that was kind of the idea we're entering into this covenant relationship this commitment to one another this promise to one another and it's a solemn and serious thing and we're walking down the center and the idea is like you know for us to part would be like splitting these two animals or splitting this animal in two. Um, we're, we're together as one. And so uh, kind of a strange thing, but it was something that Abram clearly understood and something that, that uh, culturally we know that uh, people practiced back then. And so God is inviting Abram to enter into a covenant with him. And in fact, in verse 18, it's going to say uh, in, uh, in the translation I'm using, which is New King James, it talks about, uh, it says Ab- God made uh, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And actually, the word made there means cut. He's, he, he actually uses that terminology, that God cut a covenant with him. Um, they cut a deal. That's, uh, that's kind of the picture that we're getting here. And so Abram waits for God to arrive. He wants, um, he wants to enter into this covenant with God, and so he waits around. And uh, I guess he's waiting for God to walk through the middle with him, which... I think he probably thought that would be pretty cool, me and God hand in hand walking down the middle. But then vultures come. And as I mentioned, you talk about birds, talking about spiritual things. You see that in the parables uh, with the birds coming down and snatching away uh, the seeds and things. Uh, Throughout the Bible, just pay attention when you see birds. And so the vultures come, and he starts fighting them off. And so uh, he, he, he does that, and... And eventually he gets worn out, the sun goes down, and he falls into this deep sleep. And, and I think this is what happens to a lot of people. They, they want a relationship with God, but they come to it with the wrong, with the wrong idea. The idea of it's going to be equal. <clears throat> I'm coming to you, God, and 
and I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to show you that I believe what I believe. I'm going to come to church every week from now on. I'm going to pray every day. And they make all these deals. Okay, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. And, they, and, and when they're attacked by the enemy, they try to fight them off in their own strength. Uh, they want to do the work. Um, they try fighting against the attacks of the enemy on their own, but they, in the end they find themselves exhausted, worn out, and feeling horrible. Because one of the problems is that when we try to relate to God based on our own works, we just can't do enough. Um, we may end up being proud, thinking we're doing a good job, but at the end we just end up worn out and exhausted. And so we're going to see what happens next. And, uh, and keep that in mind as we read it about how we come to God and how, how God calls us and the covenant that God will make. Uh, verse 13, Then he said to Abram, this is while Abram's in this deep sleep, he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your father or to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here from the for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God tells him, look, this is what's going to happen to your family. Uh, that he, and he, he tells him about what's going to happen. We're going to read about it later on in the book of Genesis and into the book of Exodus where the people of Israel have been taken captive into Egypt for 400 years and God's judgment upon them. And we see that, um, that God says the iniquity of the, the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, the people that are in the land right now that I promised you, they are practicing wickedness, but I'm, I'm giving them time to repent, but uh, when their wickedness finally gets to that point where God um, says that's enough, and he takes them out. A lot of people read the Old Testament, they see God saying, go into this land and wipe out all these people, and they think that this is a horrible, angry God, but what it actually is is a God that says, I've given you time. And in fact, he warns them, we'll read that uh, later on, that these people knew that they were in the land that belonged to God. They knew uh, what, was, what was happening, and they ignored it. God said, judgment is coming, and they ignored it, and they would end up facing it. Um, amazing thing that we have the same thing happening today, that we see God saying again, judgment is coming, and yet people uh, ignore it and go about their lives in the same way. And so he tells them, look, you're going to be in a foreign land until the iniquity of the Amorites is uh, complete. Um, Sometimes we forget this. this is, I think this is a really important principle. I had a conversation with somebody, oh man, a couple of years ago, where they had a marital problem, and really when I, when I talked with them, I found out really the problem was is that they'd left God out of the relationship. Well, one of them realized that and said, you know what, I've been, I'm expecting to get what I'm supposed to be getting from God from this other person, and I'm trying to please myself at the expense of our relationship, and it's just a mess. And, and so they, they started saying, no, I need to get my life back right with Jesus. And then they came to me and said, you know, I look, I've repented. I realized what the problem was, and how come God's not fixing it? And it was this thing where you're not the only one involved. You're in a marriage. There's two people. Yeah, maybe you are ready to go, but your husband's not or your wife's not. That doesn't mean give up. It just means you got to wait. When I was praying, God, I want to get married, I want to get married, um, and God told me, uh, don't ask me when, ask me why not now. Um, he only told me half of why not now because I think I was about uh, 23 years old at the time, somewhere around there. And um, 
and I thought, you know, it's just if I just you know take care of my issues, then I'll be ready, which just happened to be the case. But that was only half the story. The other reason was that at the time, my wife was only 14 years old. So even if I, if and if I got all those things ready the next day, like okay, I'm ready. He's like, yeah, that's great. You're still gonna have to wait till she's legal. You're not the only one involved, and that's what he's telling him. He says, look, your people are going to, you know, your children, your family are going to be carried off for this period of time, but they're going to come back because of what's going on with the Amorites. And a lot of times we forget this, and we start to think that our life revolves around us. And far too often it does. Uh, I had a kid in my youth group, and we used to joke with him all the time um, about how the world didn't revolve around him. Um, he was our, our drummer, and sometimes he said, I just don't like this song. Let's do something else. And everybody else would be like, like it. I hate this song. And somebody would inevitably say, the world doesn't revolve around you. And I think he got so tired of that that he probably laid in bed one night and thought of comebacks because he had a good one. But there we were one day. I don't want to do this song. And somebody goes, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. And he goes, you're right, but the universe does. I loved that. I thought... He's so honest. He believes the universe revolves around him. But you're not the only one, you're not the only one involved. You're not the only one involved. And this will happen in relationships where you want to forgive somebody and, and you finally do and you lay it down and you go to them and you say, you know what, uh, I'm sorry for my part in this. And they're like, well, you should be. And you're like, what? I apologize. And they told me I should be. What about, they're supposed to cry and be like, no, it was my fault crying and eat cookies, you know, and hug and stuff. And they don't because you're not the only one involved. And God works on different people at different paces. We like it if everything had lined up according to our schedule, but that's just not the way it's going to work. Another thing I noticed in here is this. Um, sometimes God fulfills his promises and purposes after we're gone. Sometimes we're gone. We obey God and we've moved on and gone someplace else and we never see the fruit of what we've done. Sometimes the fruit of maybe your life and ministry will come after you're dead. And like, well, that doesn't sound that good. Well, it doesn't matter because it's not about you. It's about what you're trying to accomplish for God. And maybe it's through your death that, that people are impacted. Uh, I remember uh, years ago being at church and the pastor talking about a funeral that he did for a, a high school kid that had had a heart attack uh, while working out in the high school gym early in the morning. And uh, at the service, uh, all these people came, you know, all these kids from the high school came, and he did an altar call at the end and said, you know, anybody that wants to give their life to Jesus, come forward. And he said 300 kids came forward because this kid was one of those kids that didn't just do the Christian thing on the side, go to church on Sunday, but he lived it all the time. And those kids knew it. And so the lasting impact of that kid's life and ministry the big impact, the big fruit and harvest came after he died. I thought, what a strange thing. But, you know, that's one of those things that we don't have to see the result. We just trust in the God that, uh, that is using us, that he's going to bring about the result that he desires. Verse 17. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, 
the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So verse uh, 18 tells us that God cut a covenant with Abraham. And there's some weird stuff going on here because God just didn't walk between, but he walked in the form of a smoking oven and a burning torch. I don't, I don't know if that just seems odd to you, but when I see like God represented in the movies, it's always like a bright light, maybe a dove flying through, maybe some being with the halo. I don't see a stove and a stick on fire. Oh, there's God. We'll talk about those guys in a minute. But it says God cut a covenant with Abram. Now, the covenant... What's interesting about this, and if you've been paying attention through the book of Genesis, you'll notice that this isn't the first time this covenant's been brought up. Um, And in fact, there's kind of a a pattern to covenants in the Bible. So I want to look at three of them, three three covenants according to this pattern. The first thing is the the, uh, covenant is announced. God tells Abram, I'm making this covenant with you back in Genesis uh, chapter 12. And then it's confirmed in uh, chapter 13 verses 14 to 17, and in the beginning of this chapter 15. And then finally, the covenant is ratified in blood. So it's announced, confirmed, and ratified in blood. There's that pattern to, uh, to covenants. And so we'll see the same pattern in, in the biblical, um, what the Bible calls the new covenant. Michael mentioned this when he was doing the communion meditation. That, uh, that God made a new covenant. And, and first, the new covenant is announced in Jeremiah 31, 31. And it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And he goes on to talk about having their, his word written upon their heart and such. Uh, that covenant was announced in Jeremiah. Then it's confirmed by the life and words of Jesus. And you think of uh, famous verses like John three sixteen. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That promise, again, of this, this covenant of eternal life, of this relationship with God. And, and then finally, it's ratified by blood, Jesus' death on the cross. And, and that's uh, mentioned in, in Hebrews nine fifteen. We see the same, uh, the same pattern again. Uh, uh, the announcement, then it's confirmed, then it's ratified and bled. It, um, in the, the covenant that we, th- I, I think that, that we most relate to, and that's the marriage covenant, this, this life promise to one another. Uh, it's announced with the uh, engagement and betrothal. Nowadays we even send out announcements. And, uh, and then it's confirmed by the wedding ceremony and the vows, and then ratified in blood when the marriage is consummated. So we see that pattern um, that God begins right here. So God allowed Abram to fall in a deep sleep because this is an unconditional covenant. In other words, it's all based on what God's going to do. Abram, it's a promise to him. God says this is an unconditional covenant. You don't have to walk through and say what you're going to do. I'm doing it. This is my promise to you. God passes through. Alone, And when he passes through, he does so as a stove. The Hebrew word there is also translated furnace. Uh, and as a torch, which uh, is usually translated as a lamp. And so um, you see those, those pictures a lot more often in the Bible than a stove and a torch. You see the, the pictures of a furnace and a lamp. And, and when you see furnaces in the Bible, it generally is speaking of judgment. Um, and, and the idea comes from burning away impurity. If you were going to... Uh, if you were... Uh, say, making something out of gold. You would heat the gold in the furnace and burn away the impurities or silver or bronze, whatever. And so you have that idea of, of God's judgment. 
uh, burning away impurity and iniquity. And then the, the second one, the lamp. You know, we've, we've probably all heard the verse, you know, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In other words, I am the way to salvation. If you want to be saved, follow me. I am the way. And so we have this picture of God going through as a, as a furnace and as a lamp. And I believe what he's saying is, look, there's, I'm a God of justice and judgment, but I'm also a God of salvation. And it comes down to this. Um, Michael mentioned one of my favorite things. I love it when there's one thing. When somebody says, there's only one thing you need to know about this topic, I like that because I can remember one thing. You give me five things and I'm like, oh, i got to make a word alliteration or i got to make a little phrase out of it. I like one thing. And this is what he does. He says, look, you've got one choice. I'm either your furnace or I'm your lamp. In other words, you have, you have a choice, and your choice is this. You can choose me to be your judge or me to be your savior. In other words, you can, be, you can live your life and hopefully hope to live a good life and then say, God, I want to be judged by my works, by how good I've been. And God will judge you. The only problem is you weren't that good, and you're going to end up falling short. Or you can say, you know what, you are a righteous God, and when I look upon the the furnace of judgment, I know I'm in trouble, but you're also the lamp, the light. You are the way, and I know that I cannot stand up to your judgment. I know I'm not good enough, I've fallen short, I've failed time and time again, and I need a Savior, and you are the lamp, you are the light, you are the way, you're the only way, you are the one who died in my place to pay the price for my sins, not just ignoring my sin but paying the price for them because if he's going to be a just God, sin has to be paid for. Sin has to be dealt with. And, and you know that's true because if somebody did something uh, horrible to you, you would, and they were brought to, to court, you would want the judge to come down on them. And, and you've all seen stories on the news where somebody is let off uh, a murder case, a robbery, whatever, and the police did something wrong and they're set free on a technicality. And the fam- you, know, you know, you see the family, and they're crying, and they're saying, you know, well, all we wanted was justice, and this is not right, and, and they're right. It's not right. Um, the person seems to have gotten away with it, and we would might even say that that judge wasn't fair, or that wasn't a that just um, that judge wasn't just, and yet our God is, and He always is, and He knows all the details. And so, when God looks upon sin, it must be judged. It must be. Uh, but the Book of Romans tells us that He. Uh, he sent Jesus to be, that he might be both just and justifier. In other words, that he could be the righteous judge who judges sin, but also be the one who takes the punishment for our sin. And so we have two choices. Well, we have one choice, and our, our, in that choice, it's this. I want to get to heaven on my own merit, face the furnace, or I want to get to heaven based on who Jesus Christ is, based on his sacrifice, him paying the price, for my sin. I want to go toward that light or I want to be judged according to my works. And that's really it. That's the only choice. That's the only choice. If you want to be, if you say, you know, I don't like that whole idea of, you know, well, I, you know, we're all sinners and we need a savior. I don't you know. I just want to be a good person. Well, the problem is when you stand before God and say, God, I just believe that all you had to be was a good person. God, you're going to be in big trouble because all God's going to have to do is, is ask you some simple questions. Is lying good? No. Did you ever lie? Um, 
Yes. Then you're not a good person. You still want to be judged by your own works? Well, at that point, it'll be too late. So we need to decide today, which one is he going to be? Is he going to be my light or is he going to be my furnace? Am I coming to him based on my own works or am I going to follow that light and say, my works, I, I can do nothing good apart from you. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for people in here today that uh, have been trying to relate to you on the basis of their own works, trying to be a good person, maybe as a Christian even, trying to, to do all the right things to, to earn your love or your approval. And they're getting worn out like Abram was chasing off the vultures, that, um, that they would lay it down at your feet today, that they would just enjoy a loving relationship with you, that they would do the things they do not because they're trying to impress you, not because they're trying to earn your favor, but because they already have. They've already earned your favor and are already righteous in your sight through the blood of your Son, Jesus. Shed on the cross for our forgiveness and our freedom. Father, I want to pray for people in here today that um, that have not made that uh, the choice to, to um, choose you as the lamp, the light unto their feet, the way, the truth, and the life. They have not chosen to follow the light of the world to receive Jesus as their Savior. I pray that today would be the day. Today would be the day that they say to you, Lord, you, I know you are God. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know that he paid the price for me. I believe that he is the God of the universe. I believe I'm a sinner and can't make it on my own. Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. I receive your forgiveness. Lord, I pray they would make that decision today. I pray in, in whatever way they, they say it to you, Lord, that they would just open up their heart and lay down their life before you. And Lord, for those that have um, hardened their hearts and are, are saying, well, I don't believe any of it. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd break down those barriers and that you would uh, draw them to you, that your spirit would be with them, reminding them, speaking to them about uh, who you are and what you've done. Father, we love you and we thank you for the blessing it is to be here together today. We thank you for your amazing word and these amazing things that happened a long time ago for written not just for their sake, but for our instruction. We pray those things in your precious name. Amen.